But I want you to open briefly to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 38. Hebrews 10 and verse 38. We'll continue on this little series called Living by Faith. I can't imagine or think of as a minister anything that would be more important for Christians to grasp. There are topics such as the fear of God and all of that, but it all comes down to this. The way we live, the way we exist, the way we go about our business, the way we relate to each other, and most especially the way we relate to God, it all comes down to faith. And he said in the Hebrews ten thirty eight, the just shall live by faith. Just sort of a mandate for every Christian who reads that to ask himself to question or herself, what does that mean? Because I've always thought the word faith had to do with the kind of Christianity you, you endorse or you embraced. And yet it says here, this is the way we live. What does that mean? And therefore, we should find out what that means, which is what this study is about. I didn't plan on many years ago when I got saved, I didn't plan on searching out this subject. But it really was a time when cassette tapes were just being invented and people were getting tapes and it was in that time in my life when I was born again and it just so happened at that time that the messages that I got on tape had to do with faith and like so many today I'd never heard anything about it before and knew absolutely nothing about it I saw it was in the Bible we use it a lot but I didn't know anything about it from a spiritual standpoint. As it was being explained to me in those early years of my life, as they began to declare what it means and how you live by faith, it was quite challenging or disturbing. It was such a different thing that I had ever imagined, only by the grace of God. As I look back, I can see a lot of divine activity. But only by the grace of God did the stirring come to me about a subject I knew nothing about. And the Spirit of God began to open my eyes to understand it. But see, then you got to live it. And that was where the greatest challenge came. I knew what it said. I had an idea of what it meant. And it was a challenge. And I didn't know anybody else that lived like this that I could call or talk to. There was a minister I knew and I could talk to him if I had a, a question. But the more I lived this way, the more I walked this way, the more it began to take its meaning. That's why I could say at the beginning of this message and for the last 30 some years here, this is the most important message that you will ever need to grasp and get a hold of for yourself. I mean, there's nothing, no one particular message that will outdo this one. Because this puts it all together. Living by faith. Even to the point that if any man draws back, God said, my soul has no pleasure in him in that verse. So it is important. We need to know what that means. We don't need to be too busy to hear this. We don't need to have other things to do rather than to listen to the most important thing God has to say. 
The speaker doesn't have to be gifted or good. The church doesn't have to be a big, classy cathedral tomorrow. It just has to be anointed like in the early years of my life. The stirring of God has to be there. That movement of the Spirit amongst the people that came to hear, that's all it takes. Because God can take halting words from whoever and give great meaning to your heart and open your eyes and you begin to see what it means. Living by faith. Being able to relate to God in such a way that the things he has promised become reality to you. Where you no longer have to covet and wish you could have this, wish I could do that, wish I could own that. You could be delivered from the lust of this world through covetousness simply by having faith in God for yourself. And you can step out and, and use your faith. As we already said, there are, there are sequences to faith. You have to find in the word, first of all, if you're going to claim something or relate to God for the fulfillment of a promise, you've got to know what God has said. Search the scriptures. Did he say that? Did he say that to you? How do you know? Do you believe that? Do you really accept that as true, that God said that to you? Okay, then claim it. Secondly, you claim it. You make it yours. You appropriate it. And then thirdly, if you've done that and you say, Lord, I receive that in Jesus' name, then confess it. Put yourself out there. Tell somebody. I believe in that I have or that I'm going to receive or that is mine. And then you mention what you believe. Let me tell you something else. It's just like when a man or woman gets saved. One of the most necessary, I think, looking back through the years, one of the most necessary things a saved person needs to do is to tell it. Is to confess God amongst people. Put yourself out there. Step up. On that top step and say, I have received Christ as my Lord and Savior. I am now a Christian. I'm going to live the Christian life. Those that have had like experience, go praise the Lord. Others say, well, I've heard this kind of stuff before. And then you know after you've said it, you got to live it. I remember telling my Sunday school class from my adult Sunday school class. It was like a conservative amongst liberals. But I really did not care. I had, uh, it was, you know, I had a lot of fire in those days. And, and I said, if you want to know how the Christian life is to be lived, watch me. I'll live it. And that put me on the line. That made me aware of everything. Well, it's true with faith. If you claim something, you're using your faith for something, tell somebody. Maybe your parents. Maybe your wife or your husband. Well, I've claimed the new refrigerator. Or I've claimed the new carpet or uh, whatever, it, whatever it is that, that is really impressed on your heart that God is leading you to have for yourself. You don't measure whether or not you can afford it. Well, that's just a little. You, no, God, has, God has a blank check. I mean, he, there's no limits to God. You know that. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is too hard for God. The windows of heaven are not little things where pennies fall out. They are where the treasures, good measure, shaken down, running over. This is the way God speaks of how he gives. Don't cut him short, but use your faith. You claim a new job next year? You claim a better paying job? Say it. Well, the Lord's going to give me... You don't say, I wouldn't say, for example. Well, I've asked the Lord, I would just say the Lord is going to give me... Whatever it is you're claiming, it's going to happen soon because 
What did Jesus say when you pray? Believe. Didn't he say this? Believe that the thing you asked for, you have received it. Well, say it. Because the fourth thing you do is you act like it's true. If you believe you're healed, act healed. If you believe your needs are met, act like they're met. Don't try to get somebody to take care of it. Don't hint around about your need. You believe God's heard you, act like you got it. Act like it's so. Act like your child's coming back or your marriage or your job or your whatever it is. If you believe it, act like it. You can't act like it and make it work any more than you can confess it and make it work. It only works if you believe it in your heart. Confession and action follow that. Then last couple weeks we talked about endurance. Patience. About once you have put yourself out there, laid hold of the promise, sometimes there's a delay. Sometimes the delay is longer than you thought it would be. There's these called fiery trials, whether they be physical, financial, mental, spiritual, whatever they are. But there's often the time from the day you ask it and appropriate for yourself until the time that God manifests what you're asking for. There's this time thing there usually. Faith is always for something future. When faith is fulfilled, you don't need faith anymore. Like somebody said, well, I'll believe it if I see it. Well, that's, that doesn't make sense. I don't believe that Thomas is sitting here. I can see him. I don't believe I have a piece of paper I got in my hand. It's when you don't see it that you believe it. That's the difference between the person who, who really wants to live this way and the people who just want to hear about it. You've got to live this way. And you're challenged and you're put to the test. But... Delay is never denial. And at the end of your journey, there is a growth that takes place, a level of confidence that is gained that enables you to relate to God on a better level than you had before. But everybody who, who's going to walk this way does need to understand there are, there are ways in which the devil... Even while you're confessing and acting and so forth, there are things the devil can arrange in your life that can prevent your faith from coming to pass. Even while you've got your hand on the plow and you're confessing and all that, there are things in your life that could be present that will keep your faith from ever working. And how depressing that would be and is. And how frustrating that would have to be to be doing everything right and everybody's getting answers to prayer except you. And so... We've looked at the basic principles of faith and how it works the last few weeks. Now, let me share with you tonight, and if we don't get through, we'll finish it next week. But let me point out some things that will prevent faith from working. Number one, the first and foremost thing that keeps faith from working is sin. S-I-N, sin. Sin is a flaw between you and God. Would you turn to Isaiah 59 and verse 1 and 2? Sin disconnects the relationship between you and God. Now, you can sin against your brother or your sister, but if you do, you still sin against God. 
God is the one who identifies what's right and what's wrong. When you don't want to do what's right and you choose to do what's wrong, it becomes sin. Doesn't your Bible say he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not is unwilling to do it to him? It's what? Sin. How easy that is to do. How easy it is for a little sin to come into your life and sever that relationship between God's willingness and your need being met. Sin. Isaiah 59, have you found it yet? He said in verse 2, Your iniquities have separated between you and your God that he will not hear. Your sins and your iniquities have separated between you and your God that he will not hear. Well, why won't God do it? Is his hand too short? Am I too far away from God? Well, he dealt with that in verse verse 1. It's, it's not God's problem. The problem is not with God saying no. That's the theology of those who are who had let sin rule in their life. Well, God must not want me to have it. Because if he had wanted me to have it, I would have had it. That's not what God said. There's a reason, he says right here in this first verse, there's a reason why things don't come to pass for us or things don't work for us. It's sin. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Does that mean that God chooses not to hear? Well, what would make God, who the loving Heavenly Father, why would He choose not to hear your prayer? Thank you. It's sin. It's what your Bible says. Sin. And there's sin, transgression, iniquity. How many kinds and ways of sin? Thousands. It comes down to when a man knows what is right, is unwilling to do it. It's sin. Even to the, we would call them savages in jungles who've never heard the word. God has manifested himself to them in creation. They know there's something bigger than life out there. They know that that God in their tent or that thing out there in the field they bow to, they know that's not God because their uncle made it. There's something else. But they refuse to acknowledge him. And to them it becomes sin. The light goes out. Man begins to walk in darkness. He becomes snared by the devil. He becomes doomed in his life. Sin not only cuts us off, but sin also dis- destroys us. It ruins everything. You notice it said in, in verse 2 that he has hid his face from you. Remember, see that? Hid his face from you is a way of God talking about his presence with you. How many times have we, at the end of a church service, quoted Numbers, the, the last few verses in Numbers 6? The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you to cause His countenance. And so, what do you suppose He means by that? This is the blessing. Bless my people this way, God said to him. He said... Tell them that, say this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The very next thing he said, the Lord cause his face to shine upon you. That's favor. 
That's when God is on your side. That's when he favors you. And that's when things do go well for you. That's why there is peace. And that's why there is joy. It calls it favor. Go back to the front. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And notice the reasons that he outlines in Deuteronomy 31 for why his face no longer is upon them or why the graciousness of God is no longer experienced. You're losing your song in the night, a song says. You feel like you're hopeless and helpless in this world. Now, you could be tested, of course, but sometimes you're like that because of sin. God no longer tolerates that way of life that you that he put up with, now you're going to give an account for it. Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 17, God said, Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, which means he had not yet, but they had known his presence, but he said, No, I'm going to forsake them. And then the very next thing in defining that, he says, And I will hide my face from them, and as a result, they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? Do you suppose that if this was a religious setting, that the people could get used to that? I think my ancestors did. I think they got used to that. Nothing seemed to work. Prayers seldom ever got answered. You could never be sure. It, that kind of loser mentality has been passed on down to those who grow up in that system. That's passed on to the next generation. When they become teachers in schools, and so they pass it on to their students. And we enter into a so-called relationship with God in which you're never sure that God will do what he said if he even meant what he said. And you begin to say, we know he could do this and we know he could do that, but we don't know if he'll do it for us. Because they have no faith. It's been left out of all their churchianity. Faith was left out. Just this uncertain something. They just don't know that if God said it, that he'll really do it. And we know he could. We've read that he has. But how can I know he'll do it? For me, that's what this whole series is about, how you can know. It's about walking by faith, having assurance in your heart that what God has promised is yours. As a result, you walk in peace without covetousness and without lust because your heavenly father has defined for you what he will give you. All he wants is your faith. You give him some faith, he gives you what he promised. But if that's not taught, if that's not ingrained in Christianity, then Christianity does become a form, and it really does deny the power of it. That's why so many of us had to come out of those systems. We might not have known it then. We can see it now. If I had stayed in the Christian church and been a good boy, I would have probably been as liberal as the day is long, or I would have, who knows. Because they took all the power out of it. All the certainty of God's promises were taken out. We lived as so unsure and we don't know if he'll do that or not. 
We just tried to be good enough to go to heaven, try to be nice and kind and better than we used to be, and that's about the limit. That's about all we had. And most people thought, well, if you do that, then you're probably going to make it. You're as good as anybody else. But God said, boy, what a, what a verse of Scripture. Because he is angry, he said he will forsake, be devoured. Many evils will come upon you. And even the people will say, well, this is because we've forsaken God. They know. They know. God's judgment. But you see, sin, sin sometimes is that little defiant thing that rises up in you. If you're a wife in a difficult situation, if you're a husband in a difficult situation, if you're a youngster who has aspirations other than what God has, and you hear the word that says no. What you're doing is wrong. The way you're living is wrong. The way you're talking is wrong. The way you're dealing with this situation is not according to the word. And what you want to do is lash out and let somebody know and let somebody have it. And and you want to defend yourself. And God says, no, no, you don't do that. And sin can be nothing more than that little, quiet, defiant, I ain't going to do it. That's all. I ain't going to do it. Now, if you say, well, God wouldn't cut you off of that, would he? If it's sin, he would. He that knoweth to do good and what? To him it is sin. He doesn't say, well, if a sin's not real big, you're all right. If it's just a little sin, if it gets bigger, then it becomes a real sin. That's that's Catholicism. But he just said sin is sin. Sin, listen, the subject of sin is so trivialized today that most people in churches are taught that you cannot but be sinful. I mean, when Jesus said, go and sin no more, well, they oh, that's not possible. Because we've been taught, it's been ingrained into us in Christianity that we are sinful people. One of the most popular saying, I'm a sinner saved by grace. I am not a sinner. I was one, but I am saved by grace to be sure. Sin shall not have dominion over me, and yet the devil, that's all he does, is try to turn you from loyalty and allegiance to God to something that's pretty close. And yet God says about that pretty close, there is a way that seems right, but the end of that way, if you persist in it, is a way of death because it will lead you to death. (laughs) Come on. You say, no, there is no come on with God. I mean, the the way that leads to life is narrow. Now, I know we don't like to hear this. Now, you might not, but there are people who I don't like to hear that kind of preaching. Because it's defining sin too much. Brother Guthrie was telling me once, I think he mentioned it here once, a lady in his church who finally quit, quit attending. She told him after a service one time, said, you know, you preach on sin too much. The biggest church in America today seldom ever mentions sin because people don't like that. It doesn't make them feel good. It doesn't minister joy and happiness to you. So you leave it alone. You trivialize this thing about sin. 
It's not such a big deal. After all, who's perfect? Nobody can be perfect. And you tell me that. (laughs) So you begin giving reasons for people to have in their thinking that it's okay to sin. Well, it's not really okay, but it's not like, you know, God's going to turn you off because of it. Well, the Bible says he will. And you'd be as popular as a pork chop in Jerusalem by saying that. But it's the truth. It is the truth. That we are to live holy lives. That we are to live a sinless life. We are supposed to. God doesn't say, and I know you should, but if you don't. He does say, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Christ Jesus the faithful, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin. That's not a license to sin. There are times that a weakness comes upon any of us, and we cave into it. But if you're walking with the Lord, you'll also be convicted, and you'll repent. You don't excuse yourself for for sin, because sin is what makes our life dull. Sin is what makes us wonder why. It gives us an attitude. And behind it all, of course, is the devil. Just telling you that you don't have to do. What do you say to Eve, the very first sin? Hath God said? And then begin to reason and use logic with that woman's mind. Begin to run thoughts through her mind. Making her the... Chief cook and bottle washer of life. And she began to measure herself by herself and brought God down to her level and said, well, you know, it couldn't be that bad. I mean, after all, he made everything. Why would he make something that we can't eat if he said everything was good? So she took a step because that's the way the devil does. And God says to us, come now, let us reason together. God will reason with you, but he'll reason with you about your sins in your life. Though your sins be as scarlet, he said in Isaiah 1, they shall be as white as wool. But you're going to have to sit down and listen. We're not free. Nobody in this room, if, if you're a Christian, if you've ever turned your heart over to God, nobody is free to sin. Nobody. Nobody is free to disregard what you've heard. To do something besides what God wants, to turn your head or look for a substitute. None of us are free to do that. We don't even have options. We don't even we don't even have substitutes. We have a glorious word that gives that given to us from God, and it describes, among other things, what we're talking about now, it describes the, the weakness of man and the reason man is rejected by the Lord is because of sin. It's that simple. In the Gospel of John, chapter 9, verse 31, it says, Now we know that God heareth not sinners. Now we know that God heareth not sinners. I think of how many thousand times my dad and my brother probably in repeating the rosary in those little beads that they hold and they go by one, they have to do that, or they don't have to, but they do. They talk about Hail Mary full of grace, and, and it goes on to say, uh, I have to almost quote the whole thing. Mother God, pray, it says, Hail Mary, my mother of God, pray for us sinners. 
now and at the hour of our death. Well, that's a little late because after death is judgment. If you don't deal with sin now, you pay the price in eternity. The word of God on the inside of you is a great victory in your life. It's also the thing that, that the devil attacks to get you to do something else. See, the word said this is the way walk you in it. But it's also a possibility for you to sin. When God made Adam and Eve, he gave one law, one rule, one thing to do. Don't do. Only one thing. Now, was that one thing good? Of course, of course it was good. It was how God would define in this sense. He would define your loyalty to him. Man had never been tempted. There had never been a man. And he saw the fruit and he saw this other stuff. And the only reason that seeing fruit bothered him because there was one law, one law, or one rule, whatever you want to call it. Do not eat of the fruit of that tree. And that's the one thing that gave the devil a chance for sin. Is it not true that the knowledge of the law also brings a knowledge of sin? Of course, he that knows to do good. If he doesn't do it, it's sin. So you see, this, this life, this walk, this faith walk, man, with all of its little avenues and details, we have, we have a lot to live, a lot to measure up to in our lives. And the day you begin taking for granted that you're all right and you begin to live a little bit less than you used to, becomes sin. And if you don't deal with it, it becomes a deadness that just settles into people's lives. I've seen it. And then you become eventually disinterested. And a lot of times you just leave. Find yourself a spot somewhere else where it doesn't matter. Where they don't talk about it. And you can do what you want without being condemned every week. That's the way they say it. That's what the devil would like for you to think. But just remember this. The psalmist, Psalm 66 and verse 18 said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, if I know it's in there, if I know what I said to you I shouldn't have said, what I did I shouldn't have done, what I participated in I should not have, I knew better but I did it anyway. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. I can pray. I can quote the Bible. I can get these five principles right down pat. I can, I can claim the promise and I can confess the promise and act the promise and I can endure. But if there's sin in my life, it doesn't work. You're going through all the motions of some kind of a routine, a, a faith routine, and you're getting no results. And that's why a lot of people get discouraged. It's not working. And I say to you tonight, it does work. It's never failed. The way that God has promised us has never, ever failed. We fail. He doesn't. And what he gives us to trust him with, our faith, is not designed to fail. But because it's an act of your will, it can fail because you can be tempted. And you can be tempted enough on a bad day that you can cave in. But if you've got a heart for God, you'll repent and you'll turn around. And God won't throw you under the bus. But you've got to deal with your life. All of us do. The way we live, the way we talk, how we act, what we do with our time, our money, everything about us in some way or another, everything 
from your babies to your home, money, everything about us in some way relates to God. God has something to say about what you do with everything you have. God has something to say about it. And would you agree with me that if God said this is the way walk in it, that whatever he wants is the way you should do it? Sin is the great stopper. It's a great faith stopper. Well, the second one to me is as bad as the first one. And, but it's towards man. The first one is towards God. We sin. The second one is amongst us. And we call it unforgiveness. Unforgiveness. If we will not forgive, neither will God forgive us. Would you turn to Mark 11 and verse 23? We'll start at the front and work our way to the back. Mark 11, 23. Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe those things he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. And... Now, notice verse 25 and 26, because we read 24, or we quote verse 24 a lot. But verse 25 and 26 says, And when you stand praying, forgive. If you have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now, if you were to stop, if you were to take one part of your day, just a section, a few minutes or a half hour or three minutes and think about what he said there. You have plenty to think about, not only practically, but theologically. He says that when you stand praying, well, that's not a problem. We understand that sitting, laying, standing. And when you stand praying, forgive. Now we know what that means. Forgive. She said, here's the way it works. If you will not forgive others, whatever they have done to you, verse 26, but if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Let me ask you a question. If we have trespassed, transgressed, committed iniquity, or sin, if we violated the word of God and how we are hooked up with each other and how we acknowledge or dislike each other, are we forgiven? How do we repent? Can you? Let me read it again while everybody's thinking. You see, sin is a terrible thing. When the Bible speaks about sin, you've got to listen to it. Because unforgiveness is a sin. And listen, you can have such an attitude about somebody else, whether they're in the room or they've already left or they're dead. What if I said even against God? People can have resentment. I've talked to people before that had resentment, unforgiveness towards God. 
The things that happened wasn't fair. God could have stopped it and he didn't do it. Blah, 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 blah. They were upset and angry. And when you preach the word to them, they don't want to hear it. And that only compounds their problem. For the proverb says, he that turneth away his ears from the truth. Even his prayer is an abomination. The fact that you're coming before God with a prayer is an abomination. Can you imagine? How do you define all of that? Well, it's pretty bad. We have never heard it made really as bad as it is. Therefore, we are offended when we hear it bad. But it is bad. If a man doesn't want to hear the word, then God said, I don't want to hear your prayer. And you come pleading to me, we have no relationship with each other. There's nothing there. But he said, when you stand praying, forgive that person that harmed you. That wife who did you wrong. That husband who did you wrong. That child who did what they did. Those parents who did what they did. That molester who did what they did. You were harmed and grieved and you were hurt deeply. You're told that you're scarred for life. You'll never get over that. That'll always affect your relationship with another man or another woman. And I'm here to tell you tonight, it doesn't have to affect the rest of your life because you can forgive whoever did it. That person who died, that uncle who molested, that aunt who stole your whatever, robbed you or talked somebody out of your inheritance and they got all the good stuff and left you with nothing and they've died, you can forgive them too. Because I know how families fight. Mine hadn't been a fighting family. I haven't known that a whole lot in my family. I remember one day my dad told my uncle, his brother, to get out of the house. I I saw that. But my dad was kind of like that. He told him to get out of the house and Inappropriate words were described on where he could go and what he could do with what he, when he got there. But uh, that's a form of resentment. And when you keep talking about what somebody did to you or how wronged you were, and you keep thinking and seething about how unfair it is, whether it's the IRS or the school principal, the nurse, that molester, or somebody that stole your bike or your money or whatever they did to you and really harmed you and grieved you. And you keep talking about it year after year. And I'll tell you one thing. If, if I, and when you keep doing that, it's just a form of unforgiveness and resentment. Because resentment is unforgiveness. When you cannot release a person in your life, they own you. They control you. And how many times in a, in a marriage situation, how many times in a divorce situation is there this constant talking about how wrong and how bad it and, and they go to church. Most of the time everybody goes to church. It doesn't matter. That has no effect on how they live. It's just to go to church. And the preacher has no business telling you what to do anyway. And so they live with this resentment and they get to choose sides and they get friends to agree with them. And they sit around and talk, well, he's just, and I'll tell you, then they start gossiping. 
And somebody tells a story, and this story is retold over here, but the time is told the third time, it's not even half true. But it's told as the truth, and your friends usually believe what you say. And you don't realize it, but you are an active agent in spreading sin about somebody's life who should be forgiven to other people. Because you're quoted. People quote you. Well, I'll tell you one thing. They told me, and she, and she said she was there, and he said that, blah, blah. And they begin talking like, you know, they know. You keep retelling your story. You keep retelling how you were wronged. I caught her with another man, but she repented, and I took her back. And, but I'll tell you one thing, and, and you keep talking like that. You keep telling how bad it was because I think you're seeking sympathy in the midst of your unforgiveness. And folks, when you're living in unforgiveness, what did he say in verse 26? But if you do not forgive, if you do not forgive what? Neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Does it mean that? Or do you want to admit that? I'll say it for you. If you have unforgiveness against somebody, the power of your sins are holding you down. Turn to Matthew 18. That ought to do it. We ought to get it cleared up with Matthew 18. In verse 21, Peter came to Jesus and said, Now, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? This is the oldest problem known to man is conflict with each other. Let me tell you something. Every conflict is a possibility for something good. But conflicts, arguing, fighting, disagreeing in your face, and you're living in a time in which that is exalted. In growing up, there was no such thing as trash talking. And today I, I cannot believe how ignoble unknowable, how low level and degrading the character and the personality of so-called athletes have become to where they want to promote their nastiness and their ugliness by talking nasty and talking ugly and talking bad. And Everything about that is sinful. A Christian who does that doesn't even know who the Lord is. That's not Christian. And yet you're living at a time in which that is promoted. TV and movies, magazines, they promote this outlandish, proud, in-your-faceness, this toughness. And if you say that's all wrong, it's in the Bible, I'll tell you one thing about the Bible, and then here they go. You're living there. You're living there right now. What I just said and what I've said in the last three or four minutes is about as, it's not very popular. Something that would be totally rejected by some kid who thinks that he's got to be tough and bad. But he said here, he said, if my brother sins against me, he really hurt my feelings. The, the words he used to describe me, the things he called me, the way he acted towards me, the things that they did. Unscrewed the top off the salt shaker when I shook it in, on my food. The whole thing came out on my food and I was ruining my school lunch. You don't do that to somebody that could beat you up. You do it to somebody that can't do anything about it. 
Because that's the kind of person you are. That's your character. Or you let the air out of somebody's tire. It just shows the kind of person you really are. I mean, you really are that kind of a person. And this is the kind of person that will be judged by God. I don't care what church you go to, that's the way you live. But notice, he said, Jesus goes on to tell the story, the rest of this chapter. Talks about uh, a man who owed a lot of money and he couldn't pay it. And the owner of this man, he must have been a slave, he said, if you don't pay what you owe, I'm going to... And he said, please have mercy on me. I will repay you. I am so sorry, but I'll try. And the master of that slave forgave him. He forgave him all that debt. And then the story goes on to say that same man who was forgiven a lot, he went out and found somebody that owed him $10. Grabbed him by the throat. I can't imagine. But he grabbed him by the throat. Pay me what you owe. This man had forgotten how much he was forgiven of, like a million dollars. And he's wanting to harm somebody in some way or bring pain to somebody that owes him $10. And he was just forgiven a million. So some of the friends of this man came back and told the owner of the slave, he said, Lord, you know that guy you forgave all? He said, yeah, he wouldn't even forgive his the guy that owed him $10. He did this and did that. And this is what he said. Now, here's the story. Verse 32. Then his Lord, after that he had called him, said unto him, O you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you desired me. Should not you also have had compassion on thy fellow servant, even as I had pity on you? And his Lord was angry. Now, notice, this is red. Is yours red letter? Okay, and his Lord was angry and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. Now in verse 25, it says, for as much as he had not to pay, his Lord told him to be sold. But here he says, no, give him to the tormentors until he should pay all that was due him. Well, he couldn't. It's a death sentence. Verse 35 says, so likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you if you from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. How do you read that? It's happened in my lifetime in reading this particular section of scripture and giving comment or commentary to it. Same thing happens. Everybody gets quiet. It's almost like. Is that really what he meant? Well, did he say what he meant? You think he did? Do you think it means what it says? Let me read it again. So likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you. Now that's pretty simple. There's not a big word in there. Likewise is a pretty good sized word, but... Likewise shall my heavenly father do also unto you if you from your hearts... Forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. Does that mean that I am obligated? If I'm going to live the Christian life, I am obligated to forgive? How? From my heart. i got to mean it. Well, what if Isaac kicked me in the shins while I was up here because he didn't like something I said? And I said, ah. 
And later on he said, all right, I'm sorry. Is he? Or if I said, yeah, well, I forgive you. Did I? Didn't I say I did? I forgive you. Husbands and wives, I forgive you. My cousin and I, when I was a boy, a little boy growing up, we got in a fight one night out in the hallway. We lived in a duplex. The Abshers lived on this side and the Hamiltons on this side. My cousin Donnie and I, we played all the time. He was a little older than me, but we are about the same size. We got in a real fight one night out in the hallway. and We were just knocking stuff, getting bigger, just knocking stuff over and yelling and hollering and grabbing and trying to, you know, remove their faces and... My cousin, his daddy came out in the hall, Willie. Willie grabbed us and separated us, and of course, just still trying to swing, and he shook us and gave us a little talk about love. Then he told us to kiss and make up and forgive each other. And my cousin, I still remember this like it the other day, my cousin puckered up to, to kiss me. My goodness, I spit in his face. And I, my cousin Willie wore me out right there in the hallway. My cousin was wiping off. He's trying to get back and start fighting again. I just spit. I ain't going to kiss him. See, that was unforgiveness, wasn't it? At the time, though, in my little moment of rage, what do I care about if it's unforgiveness? All I want to do is harm this man. I just want to bring injury or some sort to him so he won't bother me no more. See, there's people who think like that. They wouldn't do that. And I know you all wouldn't spit in your, enemy, uh, in your friend or your cousin's face. But it's just a way we show we have not forgiven somebody. We have not forgiven them. I had to forgive my college basketball coach. I thought basketball was the greatest thing in the world until I got to college. I had a scholarship and I had to play. It was If you want to eat at the cafeteria, you got to play ball. And I did not like the coach. The coach did not like me. We did not like each other. And we talked behind his back as how we really felt about him because I had resentment against him. When I got saved, I was reminded of it. You have resentment against your basketball coach. Boy, I thought, man, I did, didn't I? I used to say, I can't stand him. I hate this and that about him. And, and I had, I didn't know where he was, so I... I repented one night. I forget, Lord, I forgive him. I know he didn't know any better, and I'm sure I didn't, but I do now, and I, I, I repent and ask you to forgive me and to bless him. The same thing happened with my mother. My parents separated, divorced, whatever happened to them. And I wanted to go with my dad, and I couldn't, and I, I held resentment against my mother. I didn't know it until there was a word of prophecy down in western Kentucky at a meeting one weekend. A lady from Tennessee told me, you have resentment against your mother. And I didn't even know who this woman was. Never seen her in my life. And she's telling me, and I knew when she said it, my heart, and if you want to go any further with the Lord, you'll have to go home and tell her you forgive her. For all the times you felt like you were denied your father when you were growing up, and all the things that you held against her, the boyfriend she had, and the snickers amongst your friends about that, and how that laid on your mind, you need to go tell her you forgive her. And boy, I, uh, whew, I thought, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I can. Went to my mom's house in the kitchen. I sat in that chair there with that chrome leg table and said, Mom, 
I got something I need to talk to you about. And we never talked very serious. We laughed a lot and cut up, but never talked serious. She said, what? I said, I've had, <clears throat> I've had resentment against you since I was a little boy about dad and other things. And I'm just reminded of it this uh, weekend. And I ask you to forgive me because I forgive you. She started crying. I about almost did, but she started crying and made up. And, you know, that changed our relationship. But, folks, there's no telling how many different ways God can remind each one of us in this room tonight about somebody in your life, dead or alive, that you harbor ill will towards or resentment against. Maybe it was a terrorist who blew up the buildings in New York and your loved one died in it. And all your rage can never bring them back. And all your ill will and and meanness and desire for revenge can never bring them back. As a Christian, you must forgive. You must forgive. The people that killed Jesus, Jesus said, you know what he said? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. If they knew who I was, they would get me off of this cross. But they don't know. Just like us. We did things we didn't know any better. Now God is teaching us. Now God brings us together to show us things that we ought to see. So we can make sure our relationship to God is right. Unforgiveness is, a, is an acid. It just eats and erodes your joy and your peace. And keeps your mind in such a state of hate towards somebody that... Every chance you get to talk about it, I'll tell you one thing. Oh, I can tell, I can tell you some stuff about him. Oh, let me tell you about her. Well, you know, one time, and you here goes your story. You can never let it go. You know you've repented and you've forgiven somebody when that kind of opportunity comes up, and it'll be tested. And you can sit there and not add one single word to the conversation. Well, didn't that happen to you once? Well. A long time ago, the Lord, uh, I forgave him. Nobody does that. Well, I did. I sure don't want to live the rest of my life and miss heaven because of somebody that's dead. I sure don't want to have all the things that I need for God to do in my life. For me to be denied all of those things because I will not forgive somebody or something in my past or in my present. I don't want to miss heaven and go to hell with the people that are going to be there because I wouldn't let go of them. I want to be loosed from anything that binds, holds me down, and keeps me down. Turn to Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said this. Go back a few, a few verses. And you read Matthew 18 again when you're wondering sometimes about the depths of your sin of unforgiveness. You're still in your sins. Turn them over to the tormentors until. Well, anyway, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 13. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and, and, uh, and, um, and for, uh, and, uh, Are you on verse 12? Let me see. And forgive us our what? Our debts. As we forgive our debtors. Would that mean if I forgive 
somebody, then I ask you to forgive me. And Lord, if I'm unwilling to forgive my neighbor, parents, one case, the Red Cross, my father would be alive if it wasn't for those. And then mention it. Forgive them. Does it mean that if I will not forgive those people, I do not want you to forgive me? Now listen to me. If I'm not forgiven of my sins, where are my sins? They're with me. I'll say it for you. If I'm not forgiven, then I'm not what? Forgiven. To assure that I I am forgiven myself, I am required to forgive others even as. Look at verse 14. For, and this is how he ends, just like Matthew 11 was ended with two verses about forgiveness. Look at the sermon of the, uh, the Lord's Prayer, verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. What if you don't forgive men their trespasses? I'm asking you, what if you don't forgive men their trespasses? Let me ask you again. I don't want you to comment or, you know, murmur. But what if you, what if you out there with all the deep feelings you've got about somebody or something, what if you do not forgive them? Or as some people say, I can't. I just cannot. I can't. Well, what does it mean then when it says, for if you forgive... If you forgive men their trespasses, your Father will also forgive you. If you forgive not, verse 15, if you will not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you. Is that what your Bible says? It's back to Matthew 18, 35. You're yet in your sins. What if I told you this? My good relationship to God, walking, not getting born again, but walking with the Lord, can be marred by how I feel about somebody. When I see kids in our church starting to hook up, now I know it's natural, and I'm not, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying, this is what I've seen happen too many times. She likes him, him likes she. And she and him kind of, you know, together a little bit. So we all go out there together. And then one day, him and she... Have a conflict. And him say no more she. Or she say no more him. And so where they once sat here and just acted so spiritual. Hallelujah. Now him's over here. She's over here like this. And preaching to them like preaching to those chairs. You know why they're not receiving? Because of resentment. Why is it? You know what? All you young folks, I'm 73, so you can understand this. You know, there could be a whole lot better atmosphere in people's lives if you just trust God for who your mate is and let him bring him into your life at his time and quit trying to just let what is going to happen, happen. You don't have to go through all of this stuff. I hate to think that your relationship with God is only as deep as your feelings for a boy or a girl. That's as far as it goes. And if your feelings are violated, then I'm not going to go back to that church as long as she's there or as long as he's there. Your relationship to God is pretty, pretty flawed. Didn't take much for you to, for the devil to get between you and God. 
All he had to do was get between you and him or he and she. I'm just saying there's so many, there's a thousand ways you can define how sin brings resentment in people's lives. Nations and countries are under a curse today because in this country, this group hates this group and this group is trying to kill this group. The whole nation is under a curse. They're all doomed. And everybody that is resentful and full of bitterness of soul against other people and will not forgive other people, they're no different. Folks, I'm talking about living by faith. You cannot do this stuff and walk by faith. You can't do it. You can sing the songs of Zion all you want to, but if you've got ill will in your heart against anybody for any reason, I had ill will, I think, against the Catholic religion. And sometimes I'm sure it comes out of how they, my father was duped by that kind of a religion. They took all the stuff out of him. They made him nothing more than a spectator. Put his money in the sock. They had a big pole. You pass the pole down the aisle. It's got a little sock on the end of it. You stuff your money. They didn't expect much because it wasn't a big sock. And yet that was his spiritual life. They took his life right away from him. So there comes a time you have to say, Lord, while I hate that religion... I forgive that system for what they did to my father. But I will not exalt that system or leave it alone because it is a danger to other people who think there's nothing to it. It's all right. It's just another form of religion. No, it's not. It's death. It's death. So these are the things that uh, we need to deal with as far as living by faith. I can't live by faith if, if I'm a backbiter. Or a tail bearer, I have got to forgive people. I've got to let people go. How am I going to be a Christian if I don't? Turn to Ephesians 4 and we'll close for tonight. Ephesians chapter 4. One of the great, great chapters in the Bible. One of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Ephesians 4. Let me get verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. That's what I've been talking about the last 30 minutes. Those things that we do. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all hatred or malice. And in place of that, be kind one to another, tender hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That's the way we should be. Amen. Amen. Bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, make us to understand what we have heard tonight. Not to believe it because I said it, but to find ourselves seeking your counsel and to gain more understanding, to have deep convictions, to have our conscience come to play, Lord. Everything that causes us to turn from sin and live a holy life, let it, let it come, Lord. The entrance of your word makes a provision for that.
I ask you to look upon us that are here tonight with grace and favor. And cause us to walk in your paths, to be loving and kind. And as the scripture said, tender hearted toward each other, even as we have been forgiven for Christ's sake. Help us to be like him in the same way. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.